let me pray. Um, Father, we, we say thank you that you are our God. And all the good things come from you alone. And so, Lord, we bless you. Um, this psalm, Psalm 16, says, you give us a rich inheritance. But, Lord, uh, even the passage, we're not going to look at it, but the passage that we're looking at today, right near it, it says that we are your inheritance, Lord. And that is even more incredible. That we're the thing that you long for to have a relationship with us. And so, Lord, help us as we look at this passage, as we think about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever prayed a prayer like this? So, uh, God, where are you? God, I need you right now. Have you prayed that? Uh, God, don't let me face this alone. God, I can't do this in my own strength. Have you ever prayed any that or any version of that? I'm sure you have. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, you've probably prayed that. Um, and I know that's true because I've been re-watching uh, old episodes of Frasier, which is a show from the 90s. Um, and all the fashions and everything are very much that. But there's a point in there where the main character, Frasier, he actually, he's, a, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. But he prays. And he prays that prayer. God, I've never spoken to you before, but I'm talking to you now. Um, so I'm sure that even if you're not a Christian, you've prayed that prayer. And that's what today's passage is. Moses actually prays that kind of prayer. That, that's the prayer that he prays. And so the thing he asks for in his prayer is for God's presence. And that's um, what's incredible about that prayer is that he doesn't ask God to help him. That's not his prayer. Uh, he doesn't ask God to do anything except to go with him. And so the reason why I chose the text is because it's all about the presence of God. Uh, that, that's what it's about. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. It's, this isn't part of a series. It's just a one-off. And the reason that I chose it, I really did have reason for, for doing it, is because um, I just think we need to think about God's presence. We need to talk about God's presence. We need to be the kind of people in the kind of church that experience God's presence. Um, and so that's why we're looking at it. Um, so before we jump into the passage, though, because of that, um, we, um, I want to think about the times when we do pray that prayer, the times when we do want God's presence. And so when is it that we do that? Well, we do it when we do it. We do it when we need rest, right? Like you're exhausted from something and, and you just, God, I, just, I need you right now. I've had enough of this. It's been too hard. It's been too overwhelming. It's been too stressful. And so God, please let me experience your presence right now, right? We, we do it when we need something. As well, we need a job, we need money, we need a friend. Or when we're afraid of something, we pray that prayer. God, I need your presence because I'm afraid of what I'm facing. And these are all reasons we tend to seek God's presence. But what about the rest of the time? Like we're used to asking God for his presence in the like, extreme moments of our lives. But what about, the, what about the rest of the time? I always say, what about Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock? You know, everything's fine. What about that time? You know, your marriage is fine. Your relationships are going well. The bank account is healthy. Work is going all right. You know, but so what about those times? Well, what we're going to see in this passage is Moses cannot imagine a world where God's presence isn't with him in both the extreme times and just the normal every day. He just can't imagine a world without it. Uh, and so we're going to see four things in here about God's presence. Four headings rather than three. So for you note takers, you, you might need an extra you know, quarter sheet of paper. Um, one, the preference of the presence, then the problem of the presence, the pattern of the presence, and the practice of the presence. Uh, the preference, the problem, the pattern, the practice. That's, there's eight Ps there, by the way. You should be really proud of me for that. <laughs> eight Ps in there, okay? 
Um, and if we get these four things, we will be like Moses. We won't want to live. There won't be a time in our day where we won't want and long for the presence of God. If we can understand these four things. So let's take a look. First, the preference of the presence. That's hard to say, actually. Uh, the preference of the presence. Now, I need to give you a little bit of context to this passage, because not long before our passage, what Hannah read to us, Moses had been going up and down Mount Sinai. He'd been doing this for a while. Um, up and down Mount Sinai to receive the law and some other instructions from the Lord. In other words, what was happening is God was giving Moses his word. He's giving Moses, this is, this is how you're to live. He's telling him, prescribing for him. But also while he's up there, Moses, uh, God doesn't want to just give him his word. He wants to give Moses his presence. He wants not just Moses, but the nation to have not only his word, but his presence. And so this is what God said to him in chapter 25, verse 8. You don't have to flip there. I'll read it. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So right in the middle of giving all the law of how he wants them to live, he says this. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And then for seven chapters spanning 40 days, Moses is up on the mountain. And you know what the rest of it is? Seven chapters. It took 40 days to do this. The rest of it is... Here's, here's where my presence will dwell. He talks to him about the tabernacle. He says, I want you to build me this big tent. And he tells him who's going to build it and how they're going to build it and why they're going to build it and what they're going to do in it. He goes on for 40 days explaining the seven chapters to explain to Moses how God wants his presence to dwell with his people. Seven chapters of anything should tell you it's important. And so the first thing that we see about the preference of the presence is what God's preference is. God's preference is to dwell with his people. That's his preference. That's what he wants most, to dwell with his people. But there's a problem. There's a problem with this because chapter 32, do you, do you know what happens in chapter 32? The golden calf. It's a pretty famous story. Uh, one of the commandments written on the stone tablets Moses is carrying, he's written these down it actually said on it you shall not make for yourself an idol that's what it said but that's exactly what the people did while Moses was up on the mountain in God's presence instead of waiting for the presence instead of waiting for the presence of God to come down the mountain and dwell among them they make an idol so they take all their gold and they melt it down and they make a golden calf and so that that means they actually turned back to the gods of Egypt and they made one of their gods, an idol to one of their gods. And it says that they worshipped it. It says that they sacrificed to it. It even says they were like danced around it. And as Moses comes down the mountain and approaches the camp, he famously, remember this? He smashes the stone tablets on the ground. And that's an image to say, You've, this, is, this was the covenant. This was the agreement. This is God's word. And you have... Brokenness. That's the image. And so the second thing we see about the preference of the presence is that our preference, our preference is for God to stay away. Our preference is for God to keep his distance. And even more than that, it says that we would prefer to worship idols rather than the real thing. An idol, by the way, doesn't have to be a golden calf. I doubt any of you have a golden calf in your house. Um, I do have something in my house that looks like one, which is weird, actually. 
I'll explain what that is if you ever come over. But uh, it's, it's not an idol. An idol is anything you place in your life that is more important than the Lord himself. That's what an idol is. A job, a relationship, a bank account, a social status, whatever. Anything that you place above the Lord in your life, that's an idol. And so Moses, after smashing the stone tablets and telling everybody what they did wrong, Moses goes back up the mountain to meet the Lord again. And he goes up there to say, God, what can we do about this? And he begs God for mercy. And God says something very interesting, which leads then to our second point, the problem of the presence. What God tells Moses when he gets back up the mountain is, because the people broke the covenant that I made with them, because they disobeyed, my presence cannot dwell with them. So he had just gotten done spending 40 days saying how much he wants his presence to dwell with them, and then the nation rejects God, and now he says, my presence can't dwell with them. His presence, he says, would be too much for them. If they were in his presence, he says, they would die. And that's the problem of the presence. The unrighteous cannot stand in the presence of the righteous. And so God proposes an alternative. It's really fascinating. He says, okay, listen, okay, my presence, it can't dwell among you because if it does, you're going to keep on breaking the covenant that I make and we're going to have to keep smashing the tablets and keep, you know, you're going to have to keep chiseling them and my presence can't dwell there. Uh, and that means actually you're going to have to face judgment. And so here's the alternative. God says, look, okay, I'll send an angel. And that angel will lead you to the land, I promise you. And that angel will put you there. And that angel will help you defeat your enemies. That angel uh, will help you become economically prosperous. Your, your fields will grow and And you'll make all kinds of money and you'll be militarily successful and all those things. In other words, what God is saying is, I'll send an angel and you'll get everything you could possibly want. But my presence will not go with you. I will not go with you. And so he's saying is that all that stuff about the tabernacle, all that stuff about where my presence will dwell. Don't worry about it. You don't need it. There's no need for the tabernacle, no need for the sanctuary of the Lord, because I won't be there. Now, just take a step back and notice something here. Do you know what God has offered to Moses and Israel? He's offered the the kind of religion that the average American wants. He said, hey, look, I'll, I'll give you everything you want, and I'll just stay over here. And when you need me, you can come and ask for something, and I might give it to you. So you just come to me in your crisis moments and and he's offered peace and prosperity and success and victory over your enemies and the land full of milk and honey and you'll get the benefit of all of it, but you won't have me. You just have a form of me over there. You won't have a tabernacle. You won't have all the maintenance of confessing and sacrifices and offering and I'll give you all the benefits of the existence of God, all the goodness that comes from me existing, but none of the maintenance costs. Um, I wanted to show you briefly how this was to work uh, if they were to set up the tabernacle. So whenever they set up their camp, it's supposed to look like this. Like that. Oh, sorry, it's very, very pixelated. Um, but you can see there in the middle, there's the tent and the, uh, the tabernacles there. And then all around it are the camps of all the different tribes of Israel. And so they would put the tabernacle in the middle, then all the camps would go around it. And then things would radiate out from there. And so God's presence was going to be at the center of their whole society, of their whole culture. 
And not only that, as they wandered through the wilderness, as they progressed towards the promised land, they'd have to carry that. So they'd have to break it down and, you know, pack it up and they'd have to, to carry it. And it took hundreds of people to carry all the items that made up the tabernacle. But instead of all that, God says, okay, you can still have the peace, the prosperity, the land, but you won't have to do all this. And so now do you see the problem of the presence? Not only could the people not stand in the presence, but just think about the amount of work it took for them to have the presence. It was immense. And so you would think that God puts this on offer to them, and you'd think Moses would be like, where do I sign? Right? Where do I sign? Because this sounds wonderful. I get everything I want. I don't have God encroaching in my life. If I need him, he's over there. You'd think Moses would be like, let's sign the paperwork. And if you thought that, though, you'd be wrong. Because look what Moses says in verse 15 of our passage. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, isn't God's presence everywhere? Isn't he like omnipresent? And yes, he is. His presence is everywhere. But look very carefully. If you don't have it pulled up on a phone or in a, on a paper Bible in front of you, look at it. You need to look really carefully at this. Look carefully at what it says. Do you see something funny in there? Did you notice the word presence is capitalized? Do you see that? And that word for presence all through these chapters is actually the word for face. Literally, God says, my face will not go with you. And God could have used a few different words to describe his presence. So why does he use his face? Well, he uses the face because the face is personal. He's talking about his personal presence. If it was just general presence, that'd be a lowercase p. But he's talking about his face. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the personal presence of God, the face of God. But that's not all. Even more than that, when you get to verse 18, Moses actually equates God's capital P presence with his glory. Look at verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And that word glory there, it means weight. And what this is getting at is if you've experienced the the capital P presence of God, his glory, his weight... If you've done that, then you begin to realize that God is someone that you have to bow to. Someone you have to respect. Someone you actually have to take him as he is. You don't get to decide who he is. You have to take him as he declares himself to be. If he has glory. Now, C.S. Lewis, of course, uh, talks about it uh, in his famous essay. Well, it's actually a famous sermon called The Weight of Glory. He says that some people say the most important thing about us is what we think about God. Meaning... And this is probably the most common way people think about God in the West. Go and talk to the average Angelino and ask them what they think about God, and they will tell you something like this. I don't like a God like this. I want a God like this. But I don't want like one like that, but I want one like this. And what are you doing? You're making your own God. There's no glory to that God. There's no weight to that God because you've discern, determined who that God is. They fill it in with their preferences and the kind of God they would like. In other words, they go on to tell you about a God they created or constructed in their own minds. But to talk about the glory of God is to talk about the weight of God. In other words, a a God who has glory, he's already, this isn't even the right word for it, but he's already constructed 
It'd be better to say he's already self-existent. He's at, this God has existed for all eternity. There's no creating of this God. You don't construct him. You don't. You come upon him, or better yet, he comes upon you. And so the God of the Bible is an eternally self-existent God who is wrapped in glory. Which means if you really came across him, you would be filled with awe and respect and you would bow to him. Um, One of the best ways I know to give you a tangible sense of what it feels like, I think I've used this before, but is to think of God's glory like a train. Uh, If you've ever traveled Europe, the easiest way to get around most countries is by train, which means you spend a lot of time at train stations. And, uh, you know, you stand on the platform waiting for your train to come. And a lot of times there's somebody standing there whose job it is to keep you from getting too close to the platform. They're like, they blow a whistle and they like motion, like to get you away or they yell at you. Um, And they do that because a lot of times there are trains that come through the station that aren't stopping at the station. And so in one of the countries I've been to, uh, they don't even slow down. They just, they just come barreling through at 50, 60 miles an hour. These huge trains come through. They come with such weight, such glory, as it were, that you must respect them. You have to stand back from them And you give them your awe and your respect. You don't say to the train, you know, I wish you were a little bit more like this. In that moment, do you? You respect the train for what it is. And so when we're talking about the face of God, we're talking about the glory of God. That's what we're talking about. You stand back and have to catch your breath. And so in a small way, that's what the glory of God is like. You don't even... You don't even, look, look, you don't even give God glory. He is glorious. That's how glorious he is. And you know that you understand this, or at least you're beginning to understand the glory of God when you can say, that is a God that I must obey. That is a God that I must bow to. That is a God that I must respect. He is far above my likes and dislikes. He is not a being of my own construction who submits to me, but he is a self-existent God for all of eternity wrapped in glory. This is a God who it doesn't matter what I think of him, it only matters what he thinks of me. I don't get to decide who he is, and I have to submit to this God. So however he reveals himself to be, that is what it means that God is glorious. So let's put this back together now. Moses says, I will not go. We will not enter into the promised land unless your presence, your capital P, glorious, weighty presence goes with us. I'm not going anywhere. And what's he saying? He wants the personal presence. He wants God's personal presence. And think about this. The person's face, by the way, is their glory. Imagine... Knowing a person, but never seeing their face. Oh, wait, you don't have to imagine that. We've all lived that for the last year. (laughs) How many people have you met? And like maybe weeks go by and they finally have their mask off in front of you. You're like, oh, that's what you look like. (laughs) In other words, what Moses is asking for is not just to know about God. He wants to know God. He wants to be able to recognize him on the street. There's some of you who I might not even recognize you on the street. Because I've only seen the top part of your face. 
And so what's he saying? He's saying it's not enough to have the land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's not enough to be prosperous. It's not enough to be successful because even if our lives are filled with those things, we will still be empty because we will be lacking God's glory, his presence. And so let me just ask you, do you have all those things? Do you have the life you want? Or at least for the most part, you're like on the way. The job, the house, the relationships, or, or have you had it at some point in your life and you still feel empty? If so, that means in one way or another, you've taken the deal that God offered to Moses. You've said, okay, God, that's cool. You stay over there. I'll take the good things, but you stay over there. And when I need something, I'll come over and find you. And we'll see if you can help me out. But God isn't in the center of that kind of life. His glory is over there. And if that's you, you've got all the things you want out of life. You've got, or at least you're, you're working on it. But you still feel empty. It's because you're missing his glory. It's because you're missing his presence in your life. So how do you get it? Well, that's the next two points. So number three, the pattern of the presence. Well, you get the presence by following the pattern that Moses follows. And if you've been around Christ Church LA since about September, you already know this. And Clint even explained it to us at the start of the service. That this particular pattern shows up over and over and over again in the Bible. All over the place. It shows up here in Exodus 33. The pattern is up, down, up, and out. It shows up everywhere. It goes like this. You look up to see God's glory. And when you catch a glimpse of his glory... You see that you don't match up. You see that you can't stand in the glory, so what do you do? You look down at yourself to see your need to confess, to see your need for mercy. But then what does God do? He lifts you up. He lifts you up through his word and through the gospel. And in his graciousness, he forgives you. And then finally, he sends you out to proclaim his goodness and his glory to others, up, down, up, and out. Now, you might already be starting to put it together in your own minds, but here it is in this passage. Moses goes up, the mountain. Did you notice that? He was up the mountain to be with the Lord in his capital P presence. And while he's up there getting instructions from the Lord about how to worship the Lord in the tabernacle, uh, he's up there uh, learning how to be in God's presence. But then as he, uh, actually the Lord sends him down the mountain and what's happening when he gets down there? So we've gone up, now we're coming down. What happens down? Idol worship. The worshiping an idol. They turn from the Lord. And in Exodus 32, Moses prays this to the Lord. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. He's even willing to sacrifice himself for the nation. He confesses. And he goes on to plead with the Lord in verses 12 and 13 of our passage. He says, Lord, you told me to lead these people, but who's going to go with me? And if you're pleased with me, then teach me your ways. Remember that this nation is your people. So he looks down. Look at what the Lord says, verse 14. The Lord lifts him up. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God lifts them up out of their confession with his unmerited grace. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve to have his presence go with them. And yet he says, my presence will go with you. And then finally, he sends them out. In verses 15 and 16, Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us out from here. Otherwise, how will people know 
that you're with us. How will people know that we're distinct? How will they know that you're with us? Because your presence is what makes us different from all the other people on earth. And then verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, okay, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. In other words, go out. He's lifted them up and then he says, go out. And he goes with them. So up, down, up, and out. And that's the pattern of the presence of God. And so do you want to experience God's presence? Then look up to see his glory. Stop trying to create your own glory. Stop looking for, your, for glory and your stuff and your money and your relationships and look up to see his glory. And then when you do, you will begin to see the things that you need to confess to bring before him. You'll see where you need his mercy. And then the obvious thing to do is to ask for it. And when you do that, he lifts you up. He lifts you up. He sends you out then with his presence. And the more you do that, the more you will experience his presence in your life. That's the pattern of our worship services. That can be the pattern of your prayers. Worship, confession, meditation on Christ and the gospel. And then ask God how he wants to use you today. Up, down, up, out. It actually can be the pattern of you're reading the Bible. Every passage you read, you could look for what you can praise God for. Then look for where you don't match up to what God's asking you to do and confess that. And then look for how God brings you up, lifts you up through the passage. And then go out and live it. Go and do up, down, up, and out. That's the pattern of the presence. Now finally, just very briefly, the practice of the presence. Did you see the prayer that Moses prays in verse 18? Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And in this prayer, Moses actually shows us the practice of the presence Pray this prayer because it's in this prayer that you will find the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's actually the answer to the prayer, the gospel. Uh, pray this prayer and the answer to it is the Christian gospel. Because look at how God responds to Moses in verse 19. He says, uh, it says, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you my goodness. So what does that tell us? It tells us that in God's eyes, to see his goodness, to see all of his goodness, is to see his glory. Now, what we learn when we read on into verses 20 to 22 is that Moses doesn't actually, did you see that? He doesn't really get to see much of anything. Like, God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll have all my goodness pass in front of you. And then Moses doesn't really get to see anything. In verse 20, God says, you can't see my face or you'll die. And then in the next two verses, God tells Moses to hide in the cleft of a rock. And God, it says God covers Moses with his hand as he passes by. And Moses only gets to see God's back. But while this is happening, Moses gets to hear something. He gets to see something, but he gets to hear something. He hears a proclamation. God says, I'll proclaim my name. And over in chapter 34, when the event actually happens, our chapter is God saying, this is what's going to happen. Then 34, is it actually happening? Here's the proclamation that Moses hears. Chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. Remember, God's Moses in the rock. God's got his hand covering it. So he can't see anything. He only hears. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. That is the Lord's name, by the way. He says, I'm going to proclaim my name. So next time somebody tells you, uh, who, asks you who you worship, that's his name. That's his name. Did you see the contradiction in there, by the way? Because he's gracious and compassionate and loving and forgiving. But then what does it say? It says that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There's a contradiction here. How can it be both? Well, it's because of all the goodness. All of God's goodness. Remember, it says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And this is his goodness. He is gracious and compassionate. Yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's all of his goodness. In essence, that's, that's his glory. That in and of itself is the essence of the Christian gospel. And so when people say to you, who do you worship? You can actually just say Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is all of that wrapped into one. God is gracious and compassionate, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God says, I'm absolutely forgiving and I'm absolutely punishing. I want to see no one perish. I demand that everyone perish. That's all my goodness. Again, it's a contradiction, but it has to be a contradiction because God is showing you all of his goodness. Think about it. Why is God gracious and compassionate? Why does he not want anyone to perish? Well, it's because he's loving. He's absolutely loving. He's compassionate. He's too loving to let anyone perish. But why can God not let anyone off? Why can God not let anyone go unpunished? Well, it's because he's also good in the sense of justice. He's a good judge. He doesn't just let people off. I mean, think about it. You actually, you don't want a God like that. You don't want a God who just lets everyone off. You want a God who judges those who harm others, who wrong others. And so it's actually God's goodness that causes him to be just. And so it's all his goodness wrapped up. Why can't can't God let anyone off for their wrongs? Because he's so good. Why does God not want anyone to perish? It's because he's so good. Now, how do we reconcile this contradiction? Because it seems that God would always have to choose between one or the other. Either he shows compassion or he satisfies justice, but he can't do both at the same time. But think about it. Isn't that what he does with Moses? Doesn't God do both at the same time with Moses? What does he do with him? He says, you can't come into my presence or you'll die. That's his justice. But what does he do? He covers him with his hand. Just both at the same time. He says, come into my presence and I will cover you so that you can live. That's his compassion and his mercy. And that's exactly what the Christian gospel is. You can't come into God's presence or you'll die, but God says, I'll cover you so that you can live. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself comes to cover us. God himself comes in his glory and he covers us. The cross of Jesus Christ is him covering us. All our guilt, all our shame, all our wrongs are covered up by his blood, the blood that he shed on the cross. Or put it another way, in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, it says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that's saying is that on the cross, Jesus Christ was covered. 
He was covered with all our wrongs, with all our sin, with all our guilts, with all our rebellion. But for those who by faith put their trust in him, he covers them with his goodness, with his righteousness, with his glory. Which means the contradiction of all the goodness then is satisfied, both things. God can be both utterly, completely just as Jesus Christ is punished for our sins, and he is completely and utterly compassionate as he covers us and forgives us. That is the glory of God. That is his goodness. And so that's the practice. Pray Moses' prayer. Pray his prayer. God, show me your glory. And when you pray that, he will cause all his goodness to pass in front of you. In other words, the Christian gospel. Now, lastly, just going to ask you to apply this prayer a, a, a little bit wider. Remember at the start, I mentioned a few prayers that most of us have prayed at one time or another. Like, God, please help me. God, I'm afraid. Uh, I want to suggest that you replace that prayer with the prayer that Moses prayed. And just say, God, would you show me your glory? And then I want to ask you to broaden that out a little bit more. I want to ask you to pray it for our church. God, would you show our church your glory? And then I want to ask you to broaden it out even further and say, God, would you show Los Angeles your glory? And would you commit to praying those three prayers every day from now until you move away from Los Angeles? If you do, I hope you don't, but if you do. Um, and if you do, then you just replace Los Angeles with wherever you've moved to, okay? Would you pray those prayers? God, show me your glory. God, show our church your glory. Show Los Angeles your glory. And here's why. Remember that image of the tabernacle and the tents around it? Do you remember that? Maybe. There you go. Go one more. One more. There you go. That's what the prayer does. God's glory radiates out from the tabernacle to his people and out into the, the wider, the nations and the people around them. And so if we pray those prayers, God, show me, show me, show your church, show your city or glory. We're being like Moses in our prayer, but let me show you one more. Okay, one more. There we go. You see where we are? You see that? And the same thing will happen. That God's presence, his glory will radiate out from our gatherings in this building into the neighborhood, into our networks of friends and colleagues and out into the city around us. Now, the building itself, this is not a tabernacle. Okay, it's not God's presence is not behind that curtain in a personal way. Okay, it's not there. I'll, I'll show you later, but it's not there. God's presence dwells in his people. And so if we were to pray, God, show me your glory. God, show our church your glory. God, show Los Angeles your glory. That means that his presence actually radiates out from you and I. So it's not the building, it's us, it's the people. And so if we pray that, then I believe God's presence will radiate out. His glory will radiate out into the neighborhood, into our networks, our personal networks, into our city. And God will be glorified. So I'm going to pray that prayer now. God, I pray on behalf of every single individual in this room. God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And Father, on behalf of our church, would you show our church your glory? And Father, on behalf of our city, would you show our city your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.